Today on Pence Exchange, the incoming demographic collapse. Welcome to Pence Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today we will be joined by Jesus Fernandez Villaverde. He's a professor in the economics department at the University of Pennsylvania and the very own director of the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets. A native Spaniard, Jesus received his bachelor's degree in economics from ICADE in Spain and his PhD in economics from the University of Minnesota. He's a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and a research affiliate at the Center for Economic Policy Research. His main research interests are the formulation of dynamic equilibrium models, their efficient computation, and their estimation. However, he has also worked on monetary economics, economic history, and political economy. Welcome, Jesus. Hi, welcome, Fernando. Demographic transition is a term coined to describe society's move from high to low birth and death rate regimes. It appeared first in England as a parallel phenomenon to the Industrial Revolution and has then been widely diffused with a lag to the rest of the world. Today, Jesus will talk to us about its causes, its consequences, and the challenges that it brings. First of all, Jesus, why should we care about the population size? How does the size of my community, my country, the world in general, affects me as an individual? Well, there are many mechanisms that economists have proposed. Uh, some of the mechanisms highlight that having a larger population is good, and some mechanisms highlight that having a larger population can have negative consequences. So let me start first with the mechanisms that highlight the possible benefits of a larger population. In many models of endogenous growth, the driving factor behind technological innovation is the size of the market. So larger populations mean larger markets and hence a larger um, incentive to develop new technologies. And here, of course, people think about technologies in a very wide sense, not only pure engineering technologies, but things like business processes or many other uh, ideas. The way I always like to highlight this is imagine that you are a writer and that we are in a world without translations or what translation is costly for all practical purposes. And you are the speaker of English or you are a speaker of Spanish or you are a speaker of Mandarin and you have a large market to sell your novel or your book. But if you are a speaker of a very, very small indigenous language in Mexico, uh, you may only have a couple hundred speakers of the language. Your incentives for writing a book in that language are quite small. Because even if everyone who speaks the language buys a copy, you can sell at most 200 copies. In terms of uh, the negative effects of a larger population, the first thing that comes to mind these days is that there are so many worries about climate change is, of course, the pressure on the environment. Um, the type of um, pressure we put on Earth is very different because we are around 7.5 billion people that if we were maybe only around 1 billion. Now, getting into uh, more concrete considerations, many countries um, care about the size of their population also because of the size of the government debt, of public debt. 
public debt is usually expressed in terms of total GDP as a way to gauge its size. And if we are saying that the uh, I don't know the total debt is 100% over over total GDP and population is going down, that means that total GDP is also going down. Public debt is growing as a percentage of GDP and hence of our capability to pay for that debt. Conversely, if population is growing very very fast public debt is likely to become smaller and smaller as a percentage of GDP just because population is growing. And this also interacts, of course, with issues like the welfare state and our ability to pay the commitments that we made to previous generations as the sizes of the generations uh, change. In many Western economies, we embark into a very generous welfare state the construction of a very generous welfare state after World War II, and many of the ideas behind that welfare state were sustainable only because the economy, uh, the population, excuse me, was growing at around 1% a year. Once the population is not growing at a 1% a year, but the other way around is actually going down in size, that very same welfare state becomes clearly unsustainable. So those are just a set of, of small reasons why we care about the size of the population. It's not just you know, a completely uh, random number no one should pay much attention to. Before we discuss what Away does in the future, I would like to talk a bit about what happened in the past. Why we had to wait several thousand years from the cradle of humanity up until the 18th, 19th century to move away from this high fertility, high mortality rate equilibrium? Well, let me start first with the high mortality. We were just not very good at doing uh, all the type of things we needed to do to keep mortality low. We didn't have a very good understanding of health and what is behind health. And for a number of reasons, our ability to produce food and with it calories was quite limited given the size of the population. That meant that most societies could not lower mortality below 30 per thousand, 35 uh, per thousand. That means that any given year, if you have a village, let's say with 1,000 people, you will expect 35 deaths on average in that particular year. If you are in that situation, which is, as I was saying before, just given by the state of our knowledge of medical technology and the state of our knowledge to produce uh, food, fertility needs to, buy, to be also quite high because if it is not at least at the very same level, then population will start shrinking and over a few centuries, the population will disappear. And in fact, we have experience or we have evidence of some populations that may have entered into this spiral and disappear or uh, contribute very little to the modern uh, human DNA pool. Um, with respect to why fertility was so high, what were the incentives that allowed for this fertility to be high? Well, in normal times, first of all, or in previous times, first of all, we didn't have a very good knowledge about um, fertility control, although we should not underestimate how much people understood the pure uh, mechanics of um, how children are created and people also understood what type of actions we could undertake to prevent that from happening. But also because, and we perhaps come back to that later, of what um, uh, Robert Barrow and Gary Becker in a series of pioneering papers called the quantity quality trade-off. So when you're deciding how many children to have, you are really thinking about two different dimensions. One is, should I have five children or should I have two children? But also how much investment I'm going to put into these children. 
And by investment, I mean here how much time we spend educating them, socializing them, etc. And what uh, Gary Becker first, and then later, as I was saying with Robert Barrow, uh, highlighted is that in ancient times or in classical times, it was probably the best option for parents to have a lot of children with relatively low investments in their education. And that was driven most likely by the relative prices of education and the rate of return on human capital that generated very, very high fertility, which, as I was saying before, was the only thing that was really compatible with high mortality. And then population grew a little bit because on average fertility tended to be a little bit higher than, than mortality, although with big fluctuations from year to year. And when you put these things uh, together, what you have is a slow and steady grow of population, which you know, basically meant that over 10,000, 20,000 years, humans went from being a relatively small species to be a relatively large um, species by around 1800 or you know, 1750, which is where the modern demographic era begins. And both these fertility and mortality rates start to change. So that's kind of a very, very quick you know, demographic history of humanity from the beginning, from the dawn to 1750. And what would you say explains the delay in the start of the demographic transition among the many societies? For example, why Africa was the last world's region to start transition? Is just a result of the quantity quality trade-off model? Yes, yes. So I, I have recently uh, circulated a paper uh, where we try to analyze the uh, quantity quality trade-off and the demographic transition in over 180 countries. We try to go back in time as much as we can, given the available data, and we put together a very nice data set. In fact, we have a web page with all the data online that we hope more and more demographers and economic historians will use. And we are, uh, you can download all the data. It's open, open source. So basically, our view of the world is, as I was saying before, that in some moment around 1750, 1800s, the cost and benefits of this quality-quantity trade-off that I was mentioning before start to change. So um, we think that one of the, of the first things that start to change is in uh, the, uh, the rate of return of education. Think about it in this way. If you are in the early Middle Ages in Western Europe and you are a farmer, uh, knowing how to read and write is not particularly useful. You know, it may make you a better human being. It may make you, you know, aware of what has come before you, but you are living in a small village in the middle of nowhere. Your ability to read and write is pretty much useless. By the 18th century, early 19th century, we have had the Enlightenment. We have had the beginnings of the scientific revolution. Suddenly, being able to read and write starts to pay off. Even if you are something as simple as a farmer. And... A favorite example of mine is that we start having magazines, for instance, in England for farmers, where they explain very simple farming techniques, where they explain very simple improvements in day-to-day -day management of a farm. And from the perspective of today and modern farming, many of these ideas and techniques may seem very straightforward, but economic historians have highlighted that they made a huge difference. Or, you know, I'm both of us are University of Pennsylvania, our founder was Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin made a fortune precisely out of this. 
of selling the almanac for farmers where he had very basic information. So this was a very simple magazine where he told farmers about weather patterns and about you know when the day was coming out, when the dawn happened, very basic ideas about how to improve in farming. And farmers thought and very quickly found that this was enormously beneficial. So they start thinking, well, maybe I want my kid to go six years to primary school. I'm not talking here about, you know, sending the kid to graduate school and making him getting a PhD in, you know, German <laughs> German classical philosophy. I'm just talking about like very basic ideas. So little by little, the rate of return on education starts going up more and more and more and more. And also is the case that from the perspective of um, a lot of these um, of of these farmers and in general people in uh, what we call in the paper the ancient economy, which include also like small artisans, people working at homes as servants, etc. And the cost of education also starts going down a little bit, and that has to do a lot with the political process getting pressure from these people that suddenly want more education to set up a public education facilities. And that's particularly clear first in the US and later in Western Europe. And that basically induces this big drop in fertility. Uh, there is a number of other complementary explanations and I don't want to extend too much in the answer to this question, but for instance, people have also highlighted infant mortality starts going down. So a lot of uh, parents feel they need to have less children uh, and there may be a role of cultural changes. Uh, some economists have highlighted the role of those cultural changes and we can talk about those if you want a little bit later. And I don't want to completely dismiss them. I think that culture plays a role. Uh, my reading of the evidence is that culture plays a secondary role with respect to role. But coming back to your question, you are asking me, so why this happened later in Africa than anywhere else? Well, precisely because this type of phenomena that I was highlighting before of the increase in the rate of, in the rate of return of human capital and the decrease in the cost of accessing to education also happened later in, in Africa than in other countries. And in the same way that uh, being able to read and write suddenly becomes very, very profitable in Western Europe or in North America around 1850, maybe it's not that profitable in Africa, so people kept having much more uh, traditional reproduction strategies. Things have changed in Africa, and that's what we are seeing a very, very fast uh, pace of demographic transition right now in Africa uh, as we speak. Moving ahead, several projections of many countries have already finished their transition. Europe as a whole may be on the brink of completing it. Previously, you already talked a bit about the importance of its size. But what would you say, given this pattern, what will be the main challenges ahead for the world and for Europe in particular? So let me maybe take this from a slightly different perspective. And the problem I will highlight with Europe is that Europe and other countries, and also I want to include here countries like China, South Korea, and Japan in East Asia, is entering in a terra incognita, in an unknown land. Because not only fertility uh, has gone down to very, very low levels, over the last 10, 15 years, it seems to be falling even further. And in fact, most of these countries already have negative population growth. Uh, China, 
probably already started having negative population growth in 2000 at the end of 2021, um, which if you think about it, is an absolutely landmark moment in the history of humanity to have the largest population in the world having negative population growth, but many other countries already have this negative population growth. And we have never, as I was calling this phenomenon a, a terra incognita, because we have never really been before in a situation where fertility is so low and population growth is negative in such a systematic way, and this may last for decades, and it's really, really hard to think about the social and political consequences, let alone the economic impacts of this one, of these changes. I have tried in a number of articles to, to think about some of those uh, consequences. Um, some of them are going to be pure political. Uh, as a population decreases, something that we are going to realize is that population is going to fall much more in some regions than others. So it's not, let's say, that um, a country like Spain or a country like Germany or a country like Italy is losing population. It's not that population is falling uniformly all across the country. What is going to happen, and we are already seeing it happening, is that population is going to grow very, very fast in some regions while it's going to be roughly stable in other regions or maybe even slightly increasing. Of course, the mechanism behind this differential in population uh, evolution is going to be internal uh, migration, but also a little bit of external migration. Well, let me give you a very concrete consequence, which is the allocation of seats in the national parliaments. Think about how many people uh, each region sends to uh, each uh, parliament or congress. And an example that I love to put is that in the early 20th century, well, maybe a little bit later, around 1920, 1924, that was the peak of the influence of New York State in the U.S. Congress. It was sending something, I'm talking from the top of my head, so these numbers may, be not, may not be 100% accurate, but something like 37, 38 representatives to Congress, to, to the House of Representatives. Well, Florida, which back then was a very, very small state, was only sending like four or five which meant that if you wanted to be president of the United States, you had to carry New York State. In 2024, we are going to find, after the redistricting, that for the first time, Florida is going to have more electoral votes, electoral college votes, than New York State. Which means it's perfectly feasible, as it has happened repeatedly over the last 20 years already, to become president of the U.S., ignoring New York State. And, you know, politics is always full of surprises, so who knows what can happen. But do I think I will ever see a president of the United States that comes from New York State in my lifetime? I actually don't think so. I think that the probability that the next president of the United States, maybe not in 2024, but maybe in 2028, 2032, will be someone from Florida, is way higher than it will be the probability that it will be from, from New York State. Now, if I can come back to Spain, my own home country, and there is a new political movement called uh, La España Vaciada, which will be the emptied Spain, which is precisely a series of local parties in a loose coalition that they are complaining about the regions being empty and the hard consequences that this has for their social and economic life. We are going to see more and more 
movements like this create uh, appearing all across the world. And this is going to create a lot of tensions within the political process. This is going to create a lot of uh, a lot of changes that we don't really understand, and that is going to really have um, huge consequences. And you know, let me just to complete the the, the answer. Um, I think there is a good chance that a lot of the people that are listening to us right now are linked with universities in one way or another. So let me think about the consequences that this will have for universities. So let's think about the consequences this has already had for universities in South Korea. So you used to be a country that had one million children being born per year. And you have gone to a country that has 250,000 to 170,000 people being born a year. Even if you increase the percentage of each cohort that goes to the university, the fact is that there are way less children going to the university right now. That means that at this moment in Korea, there are already more university positions for people entering into the first year of the university that Koreans born 18 years ago. Uh, this is creating huge tensions within Korea, because South Korea, because basically a lot of universities need to close over the next five years. There is no way around it. Okay, If you have 400,000 positions for college students, but only 250,000 Koreans were born, 150,000 positions need to remain empty. There is, you know, there is no way around this. But, and this is a really incredible thing, the way in which universities are affected is extremely asymmetric. So Korea is this very hierarchical university system where you have at the top things like Seoul National. And, you know, if you are an economist, chances are that you know a graduate from Seoul National because a lot of the Korean economists in the US and Western Europe come from Seoul National. What is happening in Korea right now is that getting into universities like Seoul National is much easier than 10 or 20 years ago. Why is that the case? Well, let's think about it in this way. Let's imagine, and I'm going to say a number. I don't know how many people Seoul National accept in the first year, but let's imagine that they accept 1,000 people. And let's also assume, just for the sake of the argument, that they pick the best 1,000 of each generation, of each cohort. If there are 700,000 people born in Korea, being on the top 1,000 is much harder than being in the top 1,000 when there are 250,000 people born in Korea, South Korea. It becomes way easier. Okay? Now, so National is still going to be able to fill its entering class. The only thing they need to do is instead of picking the top 1% of the population, they, they pick the top 2% of the population. But then you have the second rank universities, like the next ones in the rank, and these universities, instead of picking from the top 1% to the top 3%, for instance, they will need to go and pick from the top 3% to the top 6%. And you start doing this lowering of the ranking quality all across the board. The problem is by the time you get to universities who are at the you know, little bit lower rank, they are just not kids left, and these universities will need to close. And in addition to it, this whole thing is turbocharged by the fact that conditional on going to not such a great university, 
people prefer to go to not such a great university in Seoul because Seoul is a very fun city to be with, you know, discos and bars and restaurants that going to not such a great university in a small town. So the not so great universities get the double hit of A, there are less kids and the kids who are around rather be at Seoul because now they can go to Seoul. Let's move to the U.S. In 10, 15 years, there are going to be way less kids in the U.S. because fertility start dropping very, very fast in the U.S. around 2007, 2008, which means that getting into the Ivy League schools, Harvard, Columbia, Penn, is going to be way easier. But of course, this is not going to be a problem for Penn. Penn, we accept, I think, only 5% of our applicants. Well, we will just move to getting 10% of our applicants. And the type of applicants that now get not accepted at Penn at the margin, and let's say they go to Penn State, we will just go those. But then Penn State will just turn around and start poaching the people that now instead of going to Penn State are going to Penn, well, since they need all these additional students, they will turn around and start getting students who today are going know, to the next university. I don't want to say any one, so they don't get unhappy with me. And where is this lower-ranked university going to get students? Okay. So if I were the president of a small college or university in the U.S. that is not doing that great in the rankings of quality, I will be really, really worried about where are my students going to come from 2035 because those students are just not going to exist. And those are the type of huge consequences of demographic change and this very, very big drop in fertility that the world is experiencing right now that perhaps the average person hasn't thought very carefully about. And the many, the, the typical answer to these kind of problems will be to say that maybe immigration from countries that are not yet transitioning or maybe automatization may be able to help cope with these demographic problems. Would you agree with that? I will agree with it 25%. So let me tell you why. So the first thing that we need to understand is the following. The net migration of planet Earth so far is zero. Okay? We may discover you know, alien races so that we will have positive net migration or we can start exploring the, uh, the solar system, which will mean that we have negative uh, net migration. But barring these two are foreseen events, if there is a migrant coming from Mexico to the U.S., that may help the U.S., but that will make the life of Mexico a little bit harder. Okay, so let's think then about the world at large and then about countries in specific. According to my forecast, the world population is likely to peak around 2055-2060. Okay? And in that sense, migration is going to be just about how we redistribute the relatively fewer children being born. Another way to think about this is as follows. A number that we have computed with my co-authors Nessie Kuhner and Matt Leventhal is what we call the peak birth. That is, we compute how many children, how many births happen in the planet per year. That peak was in 2016, with around 137 million births. By 2019, that is before COVID, it was already 134. So there were already 3 million less births in the planet. 
Okay, I'm not talking about Mexico, I'm not talking about China, I'm not talking about India. In the planet, in 2019, but in 2016. Another way to see the same is that by 2019, we were having the same number of births in the planet that in the early 1980s, when the population was around uh, two and a half billion people less. So that means that even if we are just thinking about giving primary education to every person born on Earth in 2019, you need three million less positions that in 2016. And immigration is not going to change that. There is just less and less people. And these 134 million people, I think that the, that birth is going to probably drop around 1 million a year for the next 20 years, 25 years. So that's the first thing. We need to remember, as a planet, we are going to face this constraint. Now, you say, I'm the United States, and I can always go and poach, quote-unquote, poach people from other countries. Uh, but this has limitations. This has, first, a pure uh, demographic limitation. Let me take an example that may be in the minds of many people, which is the migration from South America to the United States. So one of the big reasons why the United States have kept growing in population over the last 20 years is the huge migration it had from South America, from all Latin America. Well, Latin America is very far away already in the demographic transition. Mexico is well before, well below 2.1. So 2.1 is the rate of fertility. It's basically the idea that every woman has 2.1 children, which is what you need to keep population constant. And the reason we say 2.1 instead of 2 is because in under natural circumstances, there are a few more boys being born than girls. So you want to have a little bit more than 2, so you have enough girls that move into being women that will have children. Okay. Mexico is already below 2.1. Brazil is actually at this moment probably having already a lower fertility than the US at around 1.6. Chile, Argentina, Peru, eh, Colombia. At this moment, in the whole of the Americas, there is not a single country that has a fertility rate of three or higher, even Haiti, which is the higher country, we have very bad data about them. But it's probably around 2.6, 2.7, and Bolivia is also around 2.5. That basically means that the whole of the Americas, from Alaska to Tierra del Fuego, will probably have negative population growth by 2030, 2035. So once countries like Mexico have a very, very low fertility, why are the Mexicans going to come to the United States? The type of push factors existing within Mexico in terms of not enough jobs, in terms of uh, limited opportunities for younger people are not going to be there because the demographic pressure in Mexico, is, in Mexico is going to be much smaller. But second, because the changes in fertility that exist at this moment that uh, that are happening at this moment at many countries mean that the number of immigrants that we need to bring is of an order of magnitude higher than anyone is thinking about. If South Korea wanted to keep their current population, ethnical, ethnic North South Koreans, ethnic Koreans will need to become a minority in their own country. So South Korea will need to go from being a country that is 99% ethnically Korean to a country that is 30% Korean where 70% of people are not Korean. 
have we ever had the experience of a country that goes from being 99% of one ethnicity to 30% of the other ethnicity and the political system digesting this change? I don't think we have experiences of that. Now, this may be a bad statement about humans and about the fact that we are not very nice people and that we suffer from more uh, homophilia, that is, the liking of people that look like us, that the liking of people that are different. But the fact is, I just don't see any political process supporting these levels of immigration. And the appearance of extreme right-wing parties in Europe is just a direct consequence of the increases in immigration and rates. Okay. Um, so can immigration solve? Well, you can do some changes at the margin, but it's definitely not going to solve the problem because, as I was saying before, A, at the world level, there is no net immigration, and B, because even within countries, there is a limit of how many migrants you can have. The second question you ask me is, can robots fix this problem? My answer to that is no, and no because we already know what happened in the Soviet Union. Okay, so what what in the world has the Soviet Union have to do with this? Well, uh, so economists always highlight the idea that capital is subject to decreasing returns to scale. And the example we love, we love to uh, use to illustrate this is the experience in economic growth of the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union decides to go through this very, very high um, investment process during the 1930s and 1950s after World War II, and they are able to achieve a good rate of economic growth for a while. Why? Because you move from not having a very good iron and steel industry, you build your first steel mill, and suddenly you are much more productive. You can produce much more steel. But the problem is when you have the second uh, iron and steel work, that one is not that much more productive any longer. As I was saying before, it's the decreasing marginal productivity of capital. And when you build the third steel and iron works in the 1970s, that doesn't really help much. And that's why the growth in the, in the Soviet Union slows down. The same thing will happen with robots. The first robots and the first process of automation is great. The second has a lower degree of uh, a lower rate of return. The third one will have a much lower one. And before you realize, adding an additional robot doesn't fix anything. And remember, you know me for a while. You know I hate to use the word capitalism. I think that that's one of the most misleading words that has ever become popular among people. And the reason why I hate the word capitalism is because it somehow highlights that the process of economic growth is about accumulating capital. And that's completely wrong. The process of economic growth is about having better and better ideas to produce more and more stuff. We accumulate capital because we have better ideas. We don't have better ideas because we accumulate capital. So if we don't have better ideas, we don't have more ways to produce output, adding more and more robots is just not going to help that much. And that's why I don't think that automation is going to be the solution of anything. Can it help at the margin? Yes, of course, it can help at the margin. We are not going to have many kids working in gas stations, so we are going to make the gas station 100% automatized. But it is not the panacea that will fix our problems. To end our discussion, Jesus, I would like to ask you an hypothetical sci-fi question about the future. 
I recently read an article about scientists here in Philadelphia and in Eindhoven, Netherlands, that were working on artificial warm technology. Do you imagine what the future may lie if such technology becomes cheap and available? And if market incentives are not enough to alter the status quo, could you imagine a world of centralized human beings? <laughs> oh my God, I, hard to... It actually reminds me, my one of my PhD advisors, Ed Prescott, had that idea, believe it or not. He came one day uh, to our class and, and he, he had this idea that the problem is that... Um, that it was not very efficient that everyone was involved in reproduction. His idea was basically we should select 10% of the population, that 10% of the population should specialize in reproduction and the other 90% move on into production. Uh, so maybe with that new experiment, we can achieve Ed Prescott's view of a specialization. Uh, I don't know. As I was mentioning before, we are really getting into... Um, a whole new world. I don't think anyone has really fully understood the consequences of having these very, very low fertility rates. And especially if we move to situations where you can disconnect reproduction from physical behavior by humans, this opens a whole set new, a new whole set of, of, of events, which is very, very difficult for me to to highlight, I, I don't. My instant reaction is that this is going to be a terrible idea. Uh, I think that most of the children born in these artificial worms are going to be uh, highly disadjusted individuals. But you know, uh, we will, we will need to to see it over there. There is though a little bit of a of a point in what you were saying before, which is maybe we can think as a society what type of things we can do to increase fertility a little bit in advanced economies. And I know this has been a, a little bit of an issue of debate in some European countries. In general, most of the programs that help fertility do not seem to have a huge impact, but at the margin, they have a little bit of an impact. And in particular, uh, moving to a society where having children is a little bit easier along some dimensions maybe maybe worthwhile. You were talking about automation. I think that's something that may complement uh, uh, fertility more than automation per se is the fact of having flexible work hours through Zoom and things like that, and that may help increase fertility. I don't think we are going to be back in the very short run to um, fertility rates of around two. But if you can push fertility rates in countries like Italy or Spain from 1.3, which is absolutely unsustainable, to 1.6, 1.7, then the demographic uh, future looks uh, quite different. But let me say, given that you were asking also about um, this type of sci-fi fictions, something that we may not fully appreciate also is that with these very, very low rates of fertility, small differences in fertility between different groups go a very long way. So imagine that you have two groups in society, group A and group B, and you can call them whatever you want. You can call them religious versus secular, but you can call them if you are in North Ireland, Protestant versus Catholic. If you are in Belgium, you can call them French speakers versus Flemish speakers. When the fertility rate is four, the average fertility rate, usually what we observe is that group A was 4.5 and group B was 3.5. So that implies some changes in the composition of the population, but those were relatively slow. When you go to a fertility rate of 1.5, what you are really seeing is that group two 
sorry, group one has a fertility of two and group B has a fertility of one. And that implies that in two generations, the group structure of the population can change very, very fast. Some of those things are endogenous, like ideological positions. The fact that I'm from ideology A doesn't guarantee my kid will be from ideology A. But some others are cultural, like my mother language. And what I think we are going to see is that the demographic composition of many countries is going to be very, very different in 2100 just because of these relatively small differences in fertility, which in a very, very low fertility environment get magnified in dramatic ways. Well, it has been a pleasure having you, Jesus. Thank you for being here. Okay, thanks a lot, Fernando. Current demographic projections suggest humanity is quickly approaching its peak by the end of this century. The world as a whole is close to completing its demographic transition. What follows next is uncertain. A world with a lesser population creates many challenges as the size of markets and the potential for specialization decrease. It may also create new opportunities, however, by decreasing environmental pressures. Discovering what the world would look like in the following decades is both exciting and terrifying. has been Pens Exchange, Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga, and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter as at Penn underscore exchange. Stay tuned.